Have you ever gotten something on you that was incredibly difficult to get off? Maybe it was the Kool-Aid or the spaghetti sauce that stained your face as a kid. Or maybe it was from using weatherproofing membrane on a shower tub install that stuck to your skin and wouldn't come off with just regular soap and water. Or maybe it was some grime or grit underneath the car or some kind of polish that you were putting on your hands. But for whatever reason, the normal means that you would use to get clean just didn't work. Well, what if that's true not just from your skin, but what if that's true from within you? In this era of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're seeing all kinds of added precautions with personal protective equipment being added with masks and face shields and all kinds of protective wear to keep you from getting infected by this disease that is much harder to get out of your system than to get off of your skin. But what if it's true on a soul level? What do you do if there is a darkness, a filth, a grime and dirt that can't be washed off with soap and water and can't be cured out of you by any kind of treatment or medicine? But what if there's something that has to be done to you by the supernatural, by God himself to cleanse you from your sin? This morning, we're going to be looking at Zechariah 12 and 13. And we're going to see in these chapters the second of two uh, burdens of the word of the Lord found in Zechariah. At the time that this message was given, Israel wasn't the reigning world power like they had been under King David and King Solomon so famously. Those glory days for them were long gone as a nation. And That's what makes this message from the Lord all the more encouraging. In these first nine verses of chapter 12, the Lord promises his people that their strength and power will be greater than anything they've ever known before. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, the Lord makes his people victorious over all our opposition. The Lord makes his people victorious over all our opposition. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. 
And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David, the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David like, shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, out of the mouth of anyone else, this would have seemed impossible. But for the Lord, the one described here as the one who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him, nothing is impossible. He is the one who is sovereign over all creation. He is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And this God says he is going to distinguish his people from all the people. It's true that they had reeled from the cup that he had given them to drink in judgment for their sin. But now he says he's going to make them a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. They're going to be used by God to dispense his judgment to the nations. He's going to make them a heavy stone that hurts everyone who tries to lift it. But... With the certainty of their defeat, we might think that the nations wouldn't dare to gather against God's people, but yet that's not what we find. They actually do still come to oppose God's people, and we know this to be true even today. God's people have always been, and will always be until Christ returns, opposed the phrase on that day, repeated ten times in these two chapters, looks ahead to the future when Christ would come and establish his church. And even now, the opposition that we face in this world is a partial fulfillment of these words written down so long ago. But with this prediction of opposition, there is also the promise of victory. The imagery of God's people as a consuming fire suggests that no one and nothing will be able to stand in our way. And that might make us think of military conquest or maybe political power. But the salvation mentioned in verse 7 is much greater than either of those things. In order that His glory might surpass all others and resound throughout all eternity, the lion from the tribe of Judah came to defeat his people's greatest enemies. Sin, sin, death, hell, and Satan. And because he was victorious over that opposition, he has also dealt with all the opposition that his people will ever face. He is the one who protects his own. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And we are built on Christ Jesus as our chief cornerstone. And therefore we are steadfast and immovable in Him. But brothers and sisters, I think we would all be quick to admit we don't always feel that way. 
As opposition to Christianity increases the world over and even in our own culture, we can be quick to forget this promise we're given here. We will not be overcome. We will not be moved. And though all the nations of the earth gather against us, they will not prevail over us. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, we have the victory that has overcome the world. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us. You see, we have assurance of the things that we've been promised in Christ, but we do not yet fully experience them as we will. We have the conviction that these things are already ours, but we don't yet see them as we will. And that's why the Christian life requires faith. Church, don't believe the news. Believe the Bible. Don't believe your eyes. Believe the Bible. Don't believe your feelings. Believe the Bible. And the Bible says that God will make his people invincible. And this strength doesn't come from within us, but it comes through him. And do you know one of the ways that God is designed to encourage us is through displaying his power in the lives of his brothers and sisters? And I think this is exactly what verse 5 is getting at. Let me give you a present-day example. When I hear about Mac McCroskey and Betty Pardee in their poor health, continuing to ask those around them where they go to church and if they know the Lord, or when I hear about Christy Blagrave and Judd and Marcy Lindsay and Josh and Jen McClellan having a passion to minister to the needs of those in foster care, or when I hear about so many of you who have taken the initiative to reach out and meet needs of other people in the midst of COVID-19 and power outages, my soul is encouraged as I behold not your power, not your strength, but God's power surging through you. Now, when you see the Spirit of God working in and through the other members of this church, doesn't it just fire you up to see God at work? Now, here's the thing. The better that we know one another and the deeper our relationships grow with one another, the more we will be encouraged as we observe up close and personal the Spirit of God working in each other's lives. Now you might think that you're too weak for anyone to be encouraged by the Lord's strength in you. But if that's the case, then you need to look at verse 8. It's the feeblest that is, the weakest among God's people, who is said to be just as strong and sure as the king. How? Well, because both the strong and the weak have the same spirit within them. You see, when we know the burdens that others are carrying, 
It prompts us to thank the Lord for even the seemingly little things they are still faithful to do. Taking out the trash is nothing to marvel about. But taking out the trash when you're carrying a thousand pounds on your back is a little bit more impressive. We should be quick to point out even the smallest evidences of God's Spirit at work within our brothers' and sisters' lives because truly none of those evidences is small. In fact, even experiencing godly sorrow over our sin that leads to repentance displays the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And that's what we see in the next section, chapter 12, verses 10 through 14 where we see the Lord makes His people broken over the one we've pierced. The Lord makes His people broken over the one we've pierced. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadam Hiramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeonites by themselves, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Now, in a way that defines expectations, the glorious exaltation that verse 7 speaks of came to the one from Judah through his humiliation. And this is one of those spots in the Old Testament that is so directly and so specifically prophesying about what would happen to the Messiah that it baffles us that it's found in the Old Testament. And John 19 tells us directly that this prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus. But did you notice who the text says will be the one whom they pierced? The Lord, speaking in the first person, says... When they look on me. Now it doesn't get much clearer than this. God is speaking and he is the one who will be pierced. Friends, Jesus wasn't just another good teacher or wise prophet. He wasn't simply a religious leader or a compelling teacher. Jesus was and is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the only Son of God. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. In preeminence and in title, He is the firstborn of all creation because all things were created by, through, and for Him to display His glory. So what happened? 
We live in a world with fires and floods, with mass shootings and suicide bombings, with dementia and cancer and global pandemics too. That is, we live in a world that is constantly reminding us that everything is not right. And it isn't. The world as we now know it is not how Christ created it to be. You see, when Christ created the world, it was good. The first people he ever created, Adam and Eve, were very good, he said. He entrusted them with a task. Their task was to reflect his reign in heaven on earth. But instead of giving him glory, they chose to seek their own. Instead of living with him as their king, they tried to take his throne. And this attempt to be God revealed their distrust of God. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Adam and Eve quickly learned that sin is a lie that can't deliver on what it promises. But when we live as though anything or anyone other than God is God, it can only lead to devastation and disappointment in the end. And this is the world as we know it, one that is corrupted by sin. Now, it would have been perfectly just of God to immediately condemn humanity and the rest of creation along with it. But that's not what he did. Instead of condemning the world, God determined to save the world. But how? God is holy and righteous. And because He is good, He cannot allow any sin to go unpunished. Sin deserves death. And not just physical death, but eternal death of being separated from the Father. The only way that the world would ever be saved from condemnation was not through condemnation being removed from the equation. That's an impossibility. The only way the world would be saved from condemnation was for God Himself to be condemned. God saved His people from condemnation by being condemned in their place. And to express His love for the world, God sent His only Son, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus took away the sins of the world by bearing them and dying for them on a cross. His hands and feet were pierced with nails that held him to the tree. His side was pierced to prove that he was in fact dead. Jesus Christ was condemned in order to save the world. Just think about that for a moment. God the Father gave his only Son, the Son that he had loved from eternity past, To die in the place of sinners who justly deserved death. They were his enemies who had proved by their lives that they hated him. Friends, this is love. 
This is grace, amazing and free. That the sinless Son of God was condemned and pierced to save every sinner who will ever repent of their sin and believe in Him. And we can know even now that we have eternal life if we believe in Him because God raised Him from the dead on the third day after He had been pierced. Well, how do we respond to this good news? Well, to answer that question, let me make three observations from these verses. We need to respond to Christ's death with brokenness. The theme of these verses we just read is mourning. Why? Well, it's not because just that Jesus died, but because we believe he died for our sins. That is, in our place. In the words of Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. You see, we recognize that though we weren't there in person when Christ was condemned, we didn't drive the nails in His hands. We didn't shout, crucify Him. But yet our sins that held Him there were there. Though Jesus was innocent, He was declared guilty for us. And so we should respond with the brokenness of godly sorrow as we consider the death of Christ in the place of sinners. We should also respond with prayer. And that's brought out, I think, in verse 10 with the reference to a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Feeling remorse or, or, or sorrow for our sin or something we've done wrong isn't enough. A godly sorrow always leads to repentance. And repentance is a, a turning from disobedience to obedience. It's stopping one thing and starting another. And by looking to the Lord for His grace and pleading with Him for His mercy, we are expressing a heart-level repentance. When we're broken for our sin because we believe Christ died in our place, then we'll call on the name of the Lord in prayer knowing that we'll be saved. And ultimately, we, if we respond this way, we know that it's because the Lord has poured out His Spirit upon us as the beginning of verse 10 says He will. And finally, we should also respond personally. And did you notice the painstaking emphasis on the response of each individual in verses 12 through 14? It doesn't matter who you are or who your spouse is or who your father or grandmother is, each person is responsible for his or her own response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friends, if you're hearing these words right now, then you have heard this gospel message. You will be held responsible for how you respond to the news of Jesus' death and the place of sinners. You may have grown up in a Christian home with Christian parents. You may be married to a Christian. You may have all kinds of friends who are Christians. But when each of us stands before the judgment seat of God at the return of Christ, we will be held accountable for how we have 
personally responded to him and not by how someone else has, no matter how close or dear to us they are. So then I plead with you, believe in Jesus today. Turn from your sins and you will be saved. And if you'd like to talk to someone more about this, please email me at gentry at fbccamden.org. And next we see that following our brokenness in chapter 13, the Lord makes his people pure by cleansing us from sin. The Lord makes his people pure by cleansing us from sin. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from them the land of the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds in your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as one as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. When Jesus was pierced, a fountain was opened. And the fountain cleanses his people from their sin like water washes away filth. But in the words of William Cowper's, Cooper, technically it's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but pronounced Cooper. This fountain is filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Friends, the only way that we can be cleansed from our sins is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which was poured out on the cross. Now, the Bible has two ways of describing the purity of God's people. There's a sense in which, if we're in Christ, we already are pure. But there's also a sense in which we, still in this life, are being made pure. We are becoming what we truly are. And in the fountain opened by the cross of Christ, both realities meet. If we are pure because we believe in Christ, then we will be made pure as we repent of our sins daily. And it's this second reality that chapter 13 focuses in on. And we should notice to start that even our repentance is the gift of God. He is the one, verse 2 says, will cut off and remove idols, false prophets, and the spirit of uncleanness from the land. 
And ultimately, this will be realized when Christ returns and ushers in the new heaven and new earth. However, this should increasingly describe the church even today. The former idols we devoted our lives to shouldn't even be named among us. Our lives should show that we have forgotten them in our hearts because they have been replaced by the one true God. And there's only enough room for Him as the center of our affections. And Paul wrote to the church in Ephesians 5 verse 3 that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There is no place for even the hint of uncleanness among the people of God. It's the Lord who will remove the spirit of uncleanness from us, and He often does this by using others in our lives. We are instruments in the Redeemer's hands, as one book title puts it. And look at the illustration of the parents with their son who prophesies lies in verse 3. Some translations say his own parents will stab him, which probably seems a little barbaric and outdated to us. But don't miss the important principle that this text establishes for us today. We must never defend the sin of even those closest to us, but rather we must do our part to eradicate sin wherever it works. And we need to understand that we aren't helping or loving someone living in sin while claiming the name of Christ by ignoring the Bible's instructions for dealing with it. Now in this life, sin is inevitable for the Christian. We don't believe in the doctrine of perfectionism in this life that is yet to come when Christ returns. But because Christ has set us free from our former slavery to sin, repentance is always possible. And therefore, it is always required of the Christian. Loved ones, in order to be the church that God has called us to be, we must be a church that pursues the holiness of God together. And that means that we must battle sin first in our own lives, but then to aid in one another's fights against sin when and where we can. We must do this proactively by regularly speaking the truth in love to one another according to God's word, by creating avenues in our lives and asking for that in our own lives where we can. And we must also do this reactively by following the steps of church discipline that Jesus laid out for his disciples in Matthew 18. You see, taking church membership seriously is key to us fulfilling the Great Commission. A church membership is the way we know who is inside the people of God and who is outside the people of God. We are called to be distinct from those on the outside because we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And as members of the same local church, we are accountable to one another and for one another. And if our profession of faith in the gospel is called into question by unrepentant sin in our lives, 
Well, then it must be handled according to the Bible's instructions. So that there may, in fact, come a point, if we continue on in unrepentance, that we who were once in the church might need to be removed from the church for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of our own soul, for the sake of the church's health, and for the sake of the church's witness in our surrounding community. We aren't doing anyone any favors by allowing them to wander down the path of darkness unfettered and unchecked. Brothers and sisters, that's not love. That's hatred. When we joined this church, we were making a public declaration and commitment of our desire both to give and to receive soul care for and from one another. That's part of the job description of being a church member. And don't you want someone to love you enough, to care for you enough, to rush into that burning building to save you? Don't you want someone to care enough about you to scream stop when you're about to be blindsided by oncoming traffic? Don't you want to care for others that way? Loved ones, we have this great and comforting assurance to claim both for ourselves and to offer to others. Because Christ has died and was raised, His forgiveness following our repentance has already been secured. And that means that we can go to the Lord for the hundredth time when we've lost the battle to our anger, to our pride, to our impatience, to our anxiety, knowing full well that He will receive us. And that means that we can have made such an incredibly shameful and horrendous mess of things in our sin. But yet if we come to him in humility, he will restore us back into the fold. Now, church, I know that this is a difficult topic and one that I would much rather be having face to face. And that I also know that misunderstandings about how to deal with sin abound. And this is really just scratching the surface, but I see it in the text. And so I want to bring it out to you. And I do want to be quick to emphasize that none of us is without sin. That's not what this is about. We have all lied about who God is, both with our lips and with our lives. We all deserve to be struck down because of our rebellion against God. But because the Good Shepherd was struck by the Lord in our place, we have been saved from our sins. And since we have been saved from our sins, we must be quick to repent when we do sin. Jesus didn't purchase a people with his own blood so that we would continue on in sin the way we were. For a time, Christ's disciples were scattered as they abandoned God in the flesh as an attempt to save their own skin, as Mark 14 records. But Christ refused to abandon them. He went to the cross. He then died in their place. 
He then mercifully appeared to them after his resurrection to gather them together as one by his spirit. And as Christ's ambassadors, those of us who are Christians, as his body, the local church, we must not abandon our brothers and sisters when they go astray. We must pursue them and desire to bring them back to the path of life and blessing. And church, one of the ways the Lord has designed for the genuineness of our faith to be revealed is through various trials, like battling our own sin, for instance. But Christian, you are being guarded by God's power until you receive the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is kept in heaven for you with our King. And our persistent struggle to overcome the sin that afflicts us, our lives will result in His name being praised and honored and glorified when He comes. Out of all those who heard Jesus' teaching and saw His miracles, God chose to save a remnant. And this remnant he determined to refine as in fire, which is what verse 9 refers to. Like valuable metal, even gold, God's people are precious to him. And because of his love for them, he is committed to separating out all our impurities from us like dross. And passing through the fires of testing is not pleasant. But it ought to remind us that we are His, and He is ours, both now and forever. We will get the victory over sin because our King has already conquered the grave. We will be comforted by the one that we've pierced because we have mourned for our sin now. We will be sinless because we have washed our robes white in the blood of the Lamb. And until we experience the fullness of all we're waiting for on the day when Christ returns, may we pursue the Lord and His holiness together. Let's pray. Father, would you do this great work within us by the power of your Spirit to show that you are at work in us. This doesn't come from us. This comes from you. And would you get all of the glory as you see fit to refine us and shape us to reflect more clearly Christ in his glory to the watching world and to each other. We ask it in his name.